0: Good evening, everybody. Now for the last of six uh, lectures. This uh, series is called Revolution, Jews and the Great European Revolutions. Signed is a six out of six. All good things come to an end. In total, the twisted legacy of the ri- liberal revolutions on Jewish religion identity. We may be a little bit behind on this, but we're going to cover everything by the time. I hope tonight is over. As you can see, I am crazy by packing all this into six lectures. It's more like material for the sixty but the perfect is the enemy of the good. Uh, I do, as you see, want to acknowledge our sponsors tonight, the Gunsburgs and Richmond, honor their parents, and by the groves over here. Isn't this nice? And honor <laughs> grandson, whose bris took place in Yom Yerushalayim. Doesn't get better than that. Great grandson. Yep. A grandson. Right, A great grandson. Brits in Yom in, 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 in Yerushalayim. So that's, uh, that's what they call uh, Simcha. Okay. Without any further ado, I left off last night Oh yeah, good for you to me, yeah. This is what we're doing here in Shoal. If anybody's uh, crazy enough to stay up all night, so we have a program over here. Uh, this has to do with a little bit of a touch. So that's Samson Reinfeld Hirsch when he was young and his strong feelings subject of and the corruption of the Kehillahs in Jewish history. This will be a seminar in the Ghetto of Vienna, which is a topic I did at some length in Boca the other day, a halachic topic. And here is uh, Rob Zevin uh, on a very interesting short article, but very fine, I'm a big fan of his, on the position of Torah warfare, Bismanizeh. As you know, he's a big Zionist. And um, the Hawachic and Ashkaffic questions connected with uh, war in the modern era, including the French Revolution, because after the French Revolution, for 100 years, you had the only time in Jewish history where Jews fought and killed each other, since they're now joining the nationalities of the European countries, this never happened before. So you have a French Jew fighting and killing a German Jew, and so on and so forth, and this created an entirely new set of halachic dynamics as well as others. For example, if you're a Kohen in the army, and you kill another Jew, are you allowed to do it ever again? You're like, things like that. Uh, and uh, this is Van gurion with uh, his cabinet over here. As you know, he uh, was a Hasidic. Anyway, um, and I'll leave it at that. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think that covers everybody. We're planning, I'm hoping in June, I'm gonna put in the in where, when, and when, to do, I have a very interesting trip in mine uh, two actually. One to go to uh, the Jonathan Marv Museum, the uh, new Bible museum that they have in Washington, D.C. It's very interesting, I went there for a voyage of exploration. Obviously you have to do it, you know, you have to go here and avoid, go to room A and, and skip room B, but uh, it can be done. And it's really actually very interesting. I I went there very skeptical, I came back very non-skeptical. So that'll be something I hope to do on a Sunday. Uh, I I think it'll be a lot of fun. And uh, it's it's actually quite impressive in a certain way. And uh, I'm planning a a trip after the holidays, after Yom Tovim, uh, Mrs. She's not here now, Simba uh, Kelman, to Greece, a Jewish history uh, uh, trip to Greece. So I don't know if that's interesting to anybody, but if they are, then you'll get in, in touch with me, or better yet, Shema uh, Kelman. I'll pick it up from there. Uh, we have a group already, questions if anybody else wants to join. Uh, without any further ado, I left off yesterday with this very complex legacy of the French Revolution, as you see over here, the Jewish identity, and especially when you get out of France and you get to the German states, as I said before, where a lot more Jews are living, and you run into this so, this loathing of Jews that are just a very ba- basic social, almost you might say, racial level. Uh, this is a hundred years before Hitler, but the, you can see it in the distant horizon. And people said, "Look, you know, I don't want to socialize with so you. So don't make it. You know, I'm to be. Uh, I don't want you to get full civil rights. Then you can sit next to me in, in the restaurant. I don't want you to sit next to me in the restaurant. I don't want to run a you at the library. You know, that's not what I want to do. It's not the old days where we put you in chains and, like I said before, not keeping you in a ghetto. So be grateful for what." what you got, and just shut up. They didn't keep him out of the universities. So, you know, you can go and and pursue a degree. Um, Doctor is always something a Jew can do, because if you're a doctor, you can open your own practice. Isn't that right? Um, To a lawyer, to some degree like that. Uh, So what do you want? What are we bothering you for? Why do you have to have uh, full and equal civil rights and do anything, go anywhere and sit anywhere and be in the army? The army officers don't want to have a Jew with whom they have to sit in the mess hall, it's not what they wish to do, you know, and across the board. The professors don't want to have a Jewish colleague, You've got to invite them to the uh, faculty dinners, oh, they don't want that. So, get off. How did the Jews react to this? This is what I left off with yesterday, because in France it was somewhat different. Uh, it was by no means a perfect social integration, but if you were willing to assimilate, uh, you'd be surprised. And for instance, they rose in the army, into the professorships, in sometimes the government positions, in politics. It's, it's interesting. If you're willing to do the quid pro quo, and uh, you'll find Jews accessing positions of uh, public office and public responsibility early on in the, tw- in the, in the 1800s, which would be unthinkable in Germany. But that's interesting. So how did the German Jews react to this? Because 1815, 1820, 1830, 1840, Frankly, even 1848, you know, they don't get what they want. They, they don't get the civil rights. They react in several ways, which is very really fascinating. Um, first of all, they have what they call Reform A. I always distinguish between Reform A and Reform B, which means the German Jews acknowledge, they didn't get together and do it, you know, formally, but uh, organically, they acknowledge that the Germans have certain timers in us, therefore we have to change, get rid of the payas, get rid of the beard, get rid of the funny clothes, uh, as they say in America, get a nose job, change your name, uh, the equivalent of that, uh, learn German. The Germans kind of said, how can you be German? You look funny. They said, well, now I don't look funny. Well, I dress like you. Yeah, but you talk funny. You don't talk Yiddish. Well, we'll stop talking Yiddish and we'll pick up German and they'll learn German. They'll certainly will send their children to school to learn correct German. Not that there is such thing correct German, but in the 19th century, there is created correct French correct English and correct German, right? Look how George Washington wrote letters. God help us, look how Andrew Jackson wrote letters, okay? Uh, the orthography's wrong, the spelling's wrong. No, there were no rules in those days, you see? Uh, one of the effects of the French Revolution is they want to uniform, uniformatize and standardize things, which has its pluses, and they do that with languages. There's no German language, but it's created in the 19th century, and that's what we're going to teach in the public schools. In France, there was a guy, Jules Ferry, who, who uh, started uh, all the uh, standard teaching of French. The whole country should teach the same. Drop your stupid local accents. You get it? Like, like that. Uh, you know, if you go to college, if you go to a Yiddishist uh, department now, they don't want you to speak Yiddish like a Litvak. Or something. You know, don't, don't say uh, like a Hungarian or a Romanian or something like that. The, you know, the, the professors don't want to hear that. The same, the same kind of idea. Uh, so the Jews reformed themselves. And uh, they change their language, they change their schooling, they send their kids to public schools, to uh, universities, they'll uh, change dress, they'll change the public, uh, the the way they speak. Maybe among themselves they'll talk Yiddish when nobody's looking, but in public they won't. Uh, So we're like you, okay? So now you give us free and equal civil rights. We're doing our best to modify. And, uh, you know, there are many aspects of this that manifest themselves. Among the most interesting, I spoke about this 10 years ago here. Uh, The Germans kind of indicate the Jewish religious ceremonies are so weird. Uh, It's just bizarre. In fact, they don't even call it a synagogue, they call it a shul. Which a shul means a school. A school means elementary school. So you walk into a synagogue, it's like a, a kindergarten running wild. Everybody's talking and yakking and babbling and shmabbering and things like that the word shul is a pejorative and uh, in, its, uh, in its original context and uh, okay, well, so we'll fix it we'll make it more like a synagogue, more like a church there's a organic movement among German Jews themselves in the 1820s and 30s and 40s to westernize the services in many interesting ways they called synagogues "ordnungen," which means that in the little communities all over Germany, they pass, the Kehillah passes new ordinances for proper decorum in the synagogue. I don't have that anymore. Professor Stephen Lowenstein made a wonderful um, chart of it. I got to get a hold of one of these days. Uh, and you'll know, year by year, which community picked up what? Uh, nobody's allowed to correct the, uh, the, the, the Balkhari anymore. It's undignified. Uh, no loud singing, no dancing on Simchas Torah, no standing outside for Keshlavana. I mean, look how it looks to a German, you know. Uh, no, the women used to come in, a new collar would come in, and they would sing, and they'd go, la, 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 something like that. Uh, no, no unfug, you know, no, no, no uh, disorder in the women's shul, uh in the lay section. Um, what else is there? No groggers, of course, or in Purim. Uh, you know, it's anything that, 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 that is not like a church, where everything is as proper and quiet and solemn, and all the rest of it is to be. These are Jews taking it on. Even Samson Reifler-Hirsch, when he'll have his famous show in Frankfurt, he's gonna pick up a lot of these synagogues, Not the reform ones, of course, but the reform ones. You know, the thing I, one that just comes to mind is when the Kohanim Duch and they have to wear slippers. Okay? Because it's nineteenth century when you, you go tell somebody standing in socks. You get it? For once upon a time in polite company, if women were present, you weren't even supposed to say the word socks. You understand? I knew old timers, they said, excuse me, my socks is you know, things like that. Uh, these are westernized notions. They're very far from the Jewish. Um, as they say before, no clapping, you know. All, all that, uh, there, there's lots of those. I wish I remember all of the, you know, uh, only one person should shake the lulu. You know, it looks crazy if they all shake the lulu. All kind of little things. These are, are, are sad attempts on the part of the Jews to win acceptance as being members of the German tribe. We physically lived here for a 1,000 years, and more, which was a fact, that, that is true. And therefore, we're part and parcel of the uh, country. No, you're not, because the country is developed in this direction, and you Jews have gone in a in a bizarre direction. Well, no, we're not. You know, those are unessential. Maybe we did funny things in the synagogue yesterday. But from today, it's brand new, okay? Uh, you have rabbis that only talk Yiddish and, uh, you know, can't speak to save the same. We'll get new rabbis, college grads, PhDs, you, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll approve, <laughs> you see? And these were all attempts that didn't work because at the bottom line, even a tricked up Jew is an desi- de- undesirable monkey uh, for, as far as they're concerned. But there was a profound movement of reform uh, in among all Jewish communities, or, as we would say today, Orthodox reform in response to this to say, see, we improved ourselves. So uh, can, 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 can we get your acceptance now? If you want an American comparison a little bit is a Booker T. Washington. You get it? That kind of, that kind of approach will earn their uh, respect. Uh, Samson Rayville Hersh is part of this. When he was a rabbi in his younger years, he abolished the Kol Nidre in Shoal. Uh, later on, they brought it back because, as far as the Christians, everybody knows, everybody knows Jews can cheat. And they say, Kol Nidre, and that's that, like a Catholic, you know, you, you wipe away the sin. This is like very common. Called Kol Nidre Vesare. Whatever I say now, it doesn't count. So now they can go cheat the Christians. Uh, and so many communities. He was the chief rabbi of a country when he was a young man. He became chief rabbi of the Grand Duchy of Oldenburg, which was a state in Germany, a separate, independent country, when he was like 30 years old. So uh, yeah, around 30 years old. And uh, oh no, no, you know, another we're not going to do it. Uh, so even he is into that sort of thing. And when he, at the age of 28, when he, actually he actually was in his 20s when he became a chief rabbi. I said it wrong. It was much earlier. When he was uh, 28 years old. He published his famous book, The 19 Letters of Benazil. Maybe some of you have heard about it. Let's go to the next one. And he calls a spade a spade. He says in this uh, letter, he's 28 years old, 1836, exactly what I'm talking about, exactly in the period when the Jews are getting no rights in Germany. It's 20 years after Napoleon. uh, You know, how come we're not getting any respect? And Jews themselves are abandoning Judaism in a desperate attempt because Judaism looks negative and the only way you get any uh, acceptance and, and feel good about yourself in the real world is to change the old clothes for new ones. And he has this 19 letters back and forth between Benjamin and Aftali. And Aftali's the from one and Benjamin is the young guy going off to Derek. And they're writing back to each other. And, uh, and, and Benjamin's complaining how, how what a loser thinks Judaism is. In other words, he puts into the mouth of that interlocutor all the complaints called spade a space that Judaism is a turn off today, which it was and it's unreflected traditionalism and the prayers are recited in the Hebrew right they're talking about and we do all kind of crazy men, and nobody has any idea whether it makes sense or not and so on and so on and such and such and the other guy, Benjamin I'm, yeah, Amina Naftali is always saying like this you're right, you're right but that's not what Judaism is you understand? In other words, that's what it's turned into but really it's kernel let's put it this way there's a diamond in the donkey you understand? No, really it's good it's just surrounded by a lot of mishigas and we have to liberate and he even says I acknowledge we have too many Polish rabbis to speak Yiddish, and they, because every traditional family got somebody to be a tutor. But it's a little bit, maybe you'll understand what I'm saying, it's a little bit like the older years when you had a bar mitzvah t- teacher. You don't learn Judaism from that. <laughs> you, know, you don't learn Judaism from that. So, you know, I'm simply saying, if you want to get an idea, Zitz in Leben, as they call in German, you know, a piece, a slice of what life was like, you can read Hirsch, uh, his first book anyway, And he calls it it like he sees it. That's why the book was very popular. Because people said, oh, this is not like Hamidiah or something like that, where everything's great. He's calling out what's wrong with the from world. Um, So there you have it. Uh, That's one kind of reform. Uh, Hirsch, by the way, is totally in favor of reform. Not reform Judaism, but he's in favor of reform. He says those words. We have to reform the Jews, not Judaism. That's his famous slogan in the book. Uh, And he has a long arichas on all that. And then, another reaction is uh, Reform B, as I call it, and that's the official Reform Judaism, in which they're responding to the following. The Germans are saying, you want to be part of Germany, don't you, I mean, you're liars. Don't you expect to go back to Palestine tomorrow? Don't you consider yourselves members of the kingdom where, uh, 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 what do you call, Malchus based David? You say so, and the prayers, uh, that's a little tricky. (laughs) How you say, I'm a German, German, German? And then you say, I guess, no, I'm only here today. Uh, really? So in other words, basically, you got your suitcase ready to leave tomorrow. How do you say you're German? is a good time And people like Hirsch have to twist, you know. It's only when God will do it, you know, we don't expect it, you know, unless it's a miracle. If it's a miracle, even you Christians will go. But other Jews... The, the uh, founders of Reform Judaism actually they say I "Guess they're right, so let's cut the baloney and we don't really want to move back to Palestine in eighteen thirty it's, it's impossible there, and we want to live in uh, germany so therefore let's stop, let's take out of the prayers and all the other kind of stuff He's absolutely right if you don't feel it, don't say it. You can even bring a proof from the Gemara. It says. Were the ones who brought that, but before that they dropped saying because they didn't feel it. After the, t- the temple was destroyed, the prophet Jeremiah and Daniel and the others they didn't feel that he's so powerful and all the rest of it. And the Gemara says that, that God doesn't hear baloney. You know, if you don't if you don't if you don't mean it, then don't say it. So this is all a attempt, in this case, to reconstruct Judaism so that now we're the type of Judaism that fits into Germany, right? And if you're willing to play with the prayers, then obviously you're willing to play with the organ and the McSeeding and uh, the church-like atmosphere and all the rest of it, because why not? Okay? And I want to emphasize, we're not converting, we're staying, we're staying Jewish, but in a German way. This was considered such a good argument that, that Mamza, Frederick William III, the king of Prussia, forbade Reformed Judaism in 1820. He said, no, this might prevent Jews from converting. <laughs> you get it? He said, I want people to be turned off from regular Judaism and then come over to my side. So, not because he was a from Jew, obviously. He uh, prohibited Reformed Judaism for like 25 years. It's a funny world. Um, and eventually, the Reformed Jews, especially Abram Geiger and people like that who were thinkers, they, Mamash, created a, a reformed, they took, you know, it's a like clay. They reshaped Judaism into something different. You know, it's a, uh, it's a denomination, and it, as I said before, it doesn't believe in the, the, the you know, fundamentalism exactly. Certainly, rejects halach as a category. Uh, which in principle, uh, it looks for a universal world, basically. And that's what Judaism is, and all the other stuff you can do without, and we do and we do do without. And uh, those guys are ready to get rid of uh, Shabbos, Kosh, Shabbos, Brits, unit as we know. But it's all within the context of what? To win civil rights, approval from the Gentiles. There's not a strong reform movement in France. There's a fashionable reform movement in France, but it's never really strong. In France, they never developed, it's always Orthodox. The Orthodox goes to extreme left-wing ends by the time the process is over in the 1850s. Uh, and and anybody who's a from guy gets fired. But it's all orthodox. And why? Because they don't have to win civil rights. They already got it. You understand? If you, if you want to be Jewish, like I said before, provided you're sufficiently assimilated, you can go once a year on Yom Kippur and still be a colonel in the army, a professor in the university, a minister in the government. Eh, you, you, you got your rights. In Germany, you don't have the rights. And they, and they won't give it, and they keep hoping that they'll get it. And a third, I'm, I'm only dealing with a few, obviously. I mean, I can't go into this at huge length. A third famous reaction to the reluctance and refusal of the Germans to give Jewish civil rights intellectual, what they call the Wissenschaft des Judentums, the crea- creation of modern Jewish scholarship. Here again, it's based on the following notion. Very interesting. And that is, uh, right after the Hep rights I talked about yesterday, they start coming out with this. Um, where do the Germans, let's put it this way, the Germans are not only anti-Semitic they're also extremely anti-Judaic. Do you get, you, you understand what I'm saying? anti means I don't like these guys. Anti-Judaic means I think Judaism is a disgusting religion. I mean, literally disgusting. It teaches its followers to be bad to others. It says or oh, to cheat and kill the other ones he's looking. It fosters a jealousy. It is a, you know, in favor of a, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever you want. Uh, where do you get that from? There's a whole literature you probably, um, I hope you don't notice. <laughs> the whole literature of Christian writers uh, from the Middle Ages on, and particularly in the early modern era in the 1700s. I'll repeat, in the 1700s, late 1600s, 1700s, we're called Christian Ebreists, who made it their business to study Judaism. I mean, Gemara Rashi the Marsha the Midrashim, the whole nine yards, not what you think. The Carbon you know, uh, all this farm, and, uh, you know, the Rabbin of on the Parsha, the whole business. And discover the disgusting aspects of Judaism, and publish them so that you, the Christian public, will be caveat emptor will be aware of the type of people you are dealing with when you run across them. And these texts became the authoritative exposition of Judaism as far as the Christian reading public is concerned. And this is where they get: if if somebody says, like Count Mole for Napoleon, I want to study the Jewish question, he's reading Eisenmenger, because Eisenmenger. Over here, Here's, he, he, by the way, you can get it online. I mean, you can you purchase a book in English. It's not a complete translation, but it's a, I'm sorry to say, it's a fairly good translation. The traditions of the Jews, the doctrines and expositions contained in the Talmud and other biblical writings, translated from Hochdeutsch, meaning German, and which are coming from Johannes Andreas Eisenmaker, who pretended to be Jewish. He studied in Yeshiva, and afterwards, he used that information to come out against the Jews. Okay? Uh, I, I can't tell you how popular it is, but with reprinted many times. It's online. In German? I'll tell you again, you know, the first time I saw it many, many years ago, I was like freaked out. How does this guy know the Marshal? <laughs> you understand? You know, where, where did he get all this guy? But, so he did his homework. No question about it. But there's no context. Right? So you can collect statements um, in the rabbinic literature that'll say kill the Goyim. Things like that. So what's the context? Who are you talking about? What, when and where? How? You can find it. He collects them all. So that's what Judaism is. And if the Jews say, here's uh Johannes Shut, who uh, published another very famous one. If you look it online, it's very cool because he has a lot of pictures of Jewish life that he took from that time. So you want to see what a wedding was like, a Sheva bracha, a Zabris, and things like that in the uh, very early 1700s. You know, they, they, they got Johannes Schutt. Uh And there are a couple others, but these were the very famous ones. Uh, when this guy published the book, the Jews tried to get the book uh, suppressed. Uh, But it got published anyway. So that was even more confirmation that he's telling the truth. But he's not. But how are you supposed to know that? So the founders, the young scholars, these are among the first generation of German Jews who are going to college and university. And they can't stand the fact that their professors who are such intelligent people are getting all their information from these kind of texts. They said, listen, let's be 100% transparent. It's the new age. We're in the era of historicism. Now history is coming out of the closet as a discipline have the proper footnotes, you know, like I say, call it what it is, and you, the Christians out there, join us, the Jewish scholars, and let's make in a German style a thorough investigation of what Judaism and rabbinic literature always was, etwas über der rabbinische Literatur, the famous uh, early essay by Leopold Tsunz, who was a PhD candidate, University of Berlin, at the time, in 1819, at the time when the hep rights are going on, and he says... I've been a little shit, all the Jewish stuff. We're not going to hide anything; it's out there. We can jointly study it. How about making a, a department of Jewish studies in the university and uh, treating this as an a objective scientific subject? And uh, never happens. Never happens. The Germans say Judaism is nothing to study; it's a piece of dirt. The Jewish people don't have a history. Sure, we have a history. You don't have a country. You don't really have a language. You all use. Right? You don't have any f- form of government. But we have this, and it's nothing. The history, especially in the 19th century, is about important things. Right? No one wastes their time with unimportant things. You could tell me last year how many times you went to the bathroom. I don't want to know. It's history. I don't want to know. It's not important. And not only that, it's, it's not important. Unless it was. Okay? You know, for a doctor or something like that. So, otherwise, it's not. Nobody cares about the Eskimos. See? Nobody cares about the Hottentots. Nobody cares about the people in the Galapagos Island in the 1820s. Nobody cares about the Jews. They don't count. And here, what are you talking about? We have a whole lo- literature and a culture. And this and a, you have no a culture. Well, there were a few books here, but one stupid thing, the Talmud, give me a break. It's a monument to unbelievable stupidity. This is, they, this is, they, this is what you hear. And so, uh, when the Jews say, okay, we'll write our own, uh, books over there. Um, oh, and, and that's what he undertook to do. Here's a new biography of him. Here's a book in, in the sufferings of the Jews during the Middle Ages, in which he tells what the Germans did to the Jews, or, You know, like I say, call a spade a spade. All that happens is, you know, he said like this, now the truth is coming out and, uh, you know, the truth will set you free, as they say, and in certain books, and um, now you know where Judaism really is. Oh, the Germans get enraged. You're writing in favor of the Jews against the Germans you know you're talking about a German pogrom against the Jews you're Reichsfinder you're enemies of the, uh, of, of the Reich you're a negative element in Germany uh, what you should be doing is glorifying the Germans and downing the Jews meaning it doesn't work so how do you win you can't win so if you're Jewish and trying to get some kind of actual legitimation within German society other than the fact that you live there and now the state says you're a state you know and you, and you don't have to live in a ghetto um, you're not going to be successful in the 30 years or so after the French Revolution, even, even more. Uh, on the other hand, I want to be clear, the Jews do flock to the German universities. Uh, this is going to be interesting. Why is this going to be interesting? That was really dumb policy. One thing you don't want to do is have an alienated group of uh, educated people. <laughs> they didn't have that. Do you get what I'm saying? If you have people that are dumb and can't read or write, or literally don't know anything, they're like sheep, they're docile. You know, Hungary will later have a revolution in 1848. It won't work. You know why? The Hungarian peasants don't consider themselves Hungarian. They didn't even talk Hungarian, but they talked some kind of uh, dialect, and they never heard the word Hungary because they never walked two miles outside of their village. You're talking to real peasants. Same thing with the Ukrainian peasants in the eastern Galicia. They never walked anywhere. They never get anything. You say, oh, now go fight for Poland. What's Poland? What's Ukraine? You said, yes. Don't you know? I'm talking about, haven't you ever read a book in your life? No, I never read anything lot. I've never learned to read. You, you, you see what I'm saying? Consciousness is, is a modern concept as developed as a brainwashing technique in the 19th century. You couldn't have nationalism once upon a time if nobody knew <laughs> where they live. Where do you live? I live near the river. What's the country? I don't know. I'm, I'm serious. You know, It's the country with the soldiers and the white coats. You, know, you might know who the king is or the duke. But that's it, right? It's totally possible. When I was a little kid, I had a mate. When I was growing up, and you know, what do you what do you know about World War II? Or something like that. I, I was a little kid. When uh, General MacArthur. That's all she, she heard. The name General MacArthur. What about Roosevelt? Never heard of Roosevelt. Like lived in this country. You can do. You can be like that. So. uh how do you win? The Jews are now going and they're getting a political consciousness. You have people with university degrees. You know what's worse than a person with a university degree? A person without. Does that, does that make sense? Someone has two, three years of schooling and then they leave. They have no chance of get, using that PhD because they have what? They have too much book knowledge. Th- these are the revolutionaries. You follow? They're not invested in the system. The other guy says I have a degree, I'm gonna to try to get a job and some college or so a government job, you know, so I don't wanna I don't wanna rock the boat. These people can rock the boat. See a lot of people, Jews now, not only Jews, but I'm focusing here on Jews, they're coming out, uh, educated people hurt by the system are the revolutionaries, or else they're passionate liberals or democrats. So just wait until eighteen forty eight hits and these guys pop up like bad mushrooms all over Central Europe. Jewish intellectuals who by law have been alienated from the status quo. Not too smart. Uh, Okay. Now, as far as the background, we're in the age of Metternich. Okay. Uh, Henry Kissinger, as you know, wrote the classic book of Metternich. Look what he wrote. Kissinger admired Metternich. Why did he admire Metternich? Because like I told you yesterday, it's 30 years of peace and in some place 100 years of peace. That's more worth than anything else. Peace is no little thing. Even a backwards culture and a reactionary political system, if it's peace and quiet, that's Ghanedin, you see? Because otherwise, what happened? I'll show you the Kissinger argument. Metternich eventually was overthrown. Then you had nationalism. Nationalism led to World War I and World War II. What does that mean, the destruction of Europe? So who was right? You, you, you can make that argument, you see? So in the time of Metternich, it wasn't so simple. There's a there's a century of peace, and in Central Europe, and in a lot of Europe, this we call the Four Merits, the the, the uh, era before March of 1848, in which um, you literally had no wars in Europe, because any Metternich would get together with the Tsar of Russia and the Emperor of Austria and the King of Prussia and King of France every year or so. They shoot the bull, this that and the other, and you know play cards, and any issues were settled like that. So there's no war. They found that they agreed more things than they didn't agree. If they argue about a province, you can put it in, in perspective. You know, this one will give a little here, give a little there. Is It's what the United Nations should be, so to speak. Okay? At the price, however, of suppressing nationalism and liberalism, both of which would have been fatal to peace, as I said before. If you allow, as Manchunek sees it, I'm giving a reactionary argument tonight. He says, if... If you allow liberalism and therefore a lot of people vote and they have newspapers and they criticize the government and they counter-criticize and people get angry and next thing you know, we're fighting over Trump. Who knows where that could lead as a society? And next thing you know, it's counterproductive. Better, no one should talk about, doesn't matter. Don't talk about politics at all. If you read the newspapers of Central Europe in the 1820s and 30s, the newest play... is is Hasring over Beethoven, (laughs) you follow? Strauss, uh, who wrote a new book. Uh, Maybe a little bit of Scandals of the Rich and Famous, which a lot of what what people read anyway, you get it? Uh, They're called Biedermeyer, with a certain furniture and a certain way of looking, very bourgeois. And the bottom line is like this. You have a life, just stick out of politics. This is really what uh, certain authoritarian regimes offer today in certain places of the world. I'm thinking for example of Singapore, place that. You have a life, you have an economy, you make a living, just shut up. Don't in politics. China's a good example. You have a couple billion people. No one's allowed to talk politics. But a lot of things to talk about besides politics. You know? To be perfectly honest, not everybody's into politics even to here. Correct? Some are, some aren't. Some people are perfectly willing to you know to talk about the baseball games and about the the, 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 the music things and, you know, like I say, the latest scandal, uh, you know, in the Hollywood, and the shine, time is made up, so that's the matter leave leave it, leave it to us. Um, The problem was that uh, liberalism and nationalism, the feeling that we're a nation, nationalism means, you have a mystical belief. It's not scientific. Judaism has it too, that the sum is greater than, the, than the, 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 the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. There's a couple million Frenchmen, but there's France, the French people. Individual Frenchmen may be stupid or not, but the French people is a mystical reality, which is Le'elo, Le'elo. Now, I'll say it again. In Judaism, we have the same thing. A lot of people don't know it today because we kind of lost this in the last 200 years since the Jewish polity has been hopelessly fractured after the French Revolution. Um, but there's a, a concept called Klausroth as a mystical entity, and Klausroth is impervious and goes on forever. Maybe individual Jews might sin. He might even get a holocaust. But Claudius Yisrael per se is, a, you know, uh, a, a God has a promise that they'll never be destroyed. You know, that kind of talk. And what you're really saying, and, and I just want you to know, and, and helping Claudius Yisrael is considered the number one mitzvah. And, uh, you know, you read Lutzato, read the Messias for example, and books like that. The ideal Jewish, listen uh, what I'm saying, the ideal Jewish community is not where everybody's religious. The ideal Jewish community is we have all different types, like the Keteris. You have religious, non-religious, left to right, but in a hierarchical position, where the people on the left acknowledge their sinners, and the people on the right are the role models. But once we do that, you can do whatever you want. And uh, like you say in, on Yom Kippur, we want all people to come to the show. and and any person. Uh, you know, we have this a little bit, a little bit, in Israel. Okay? I know it's a political hot potato and all the rest, but really in Israel, didn't the guy jump on a grenade? So what do you call that? They're doing for claw Israel. Most people, if you're not crazy, they'll say, I guess, religious, no, it doesn't matter, but he's for the claw for, for the And that's considered a very high level. Well, it's okay with me, I'm Jewish. But if you're Bulgarian, you're Lithuanian, you're Polish, you're Ukrainian, it goes on and on. And the problem in Europe is, everybody's submished. If all the Lithuanians lived here and all the Polish lived here and the Germans lived there, that's one thing. But if you know anything about the, the ethnic patterns, especially in Central Europe and Eastern Europe, that developed uh, over the centuries, I don't know if you notice there was a big area in Hungary with a little, uh ah, I forget the name, Germans, okay? It's all Germans because one of the emperors moving back there in the 1600s, 1700s. In, in Russia, they had the Volga Germans. Other places, you have, you know, It's a a Polish thing in the middle of Germany, a German thing in the middle of Poland. It's all submissive. Some of us will perhaps remember the Sudeten crisis in which there were Germans living in Czechoslovakia. Remember that? And uh, what do you do with all that? What what do you do? What's the answer? If you start activating nationalism, you're sending off a a powder keg. Uh, But they were realities. Uh, They were subjective, but they were mental and emotional realities. Suppressed for decades. Sooner or later, They're going to explode. Here's a, if if this works, here's a famous speech I got this from a movie, nineteen twenty nine of Disraeli. He, so he he uh, an actor playing Disraeli. But uh, he's talking about Russia. Okay? And he says, uh, things look look okay, but it's a volcano one that's gonna blow up. Let's see if, we could, if let's see if it works. Let's go from the beginning. Work? <laughs> one of the original talking movies <laughs> seriously <laughs> Maybe it's a salad. No, no. doesn't work oh well Anyway, danger of the world. If you go. But you think that because no war clouds in the present horizon, that there is no danger. You never see one of those marine landscapes on the coast of South America. You behold a range of exhausted Exhausted volcanoes. Not a plane figures on a single parade peak one day And he was right, he's talking about Russian nationalism. They're going to try to take over they're going to try, 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 take over Europe. You see? So that's it. That's enough. Now um, the nationalities problem concerned the nationalities who didn't have their own countries for independence. There are a lot of those. After the Congress of Vienna, only a few countries exist. So you've got tons and tons of groups that are on the outs, that the status quo is not accommodated. For example, take a look at Italy. That's Italy. It's a whole bunch of different countries. Seven different countries. So what is that? The Italians say, who wants all this junk? It's one country. Right? What is this? It's one country. You've the king of the Naples, you got the papal states, you got Tuscany, this, that, and the other. What's um, it? And all through this period, the Italians were big terrorists, because they're trying to get their independence. You understand? Uh, Poland. Oh my goodness. Poland lost the whole country. Once upon a time, Poland was giant, and it doesn't exist. Here's Poland, and now it's Russia, Prussia, Austria. You know? <laughs> What happened to Poland? It doesn't exist. If you're Polish, and it's the 1800s, <laughs> let's rebel. You see? If you're German, German? Look at Germany. What is this? It's 37 different countries. It's one Germany. Yeah. Who who created this business? You see? Why, 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 why is that? I mean, I live in a different state than you, Big dip, But It's one, we all speak the same language. We all feel pretty much the same. You know, how come this is Austria and this is Bavaria and this is Saxony and this is Württemberg? These are all totally different, separate countries. Sam Strainflores was around by this little Medina over here in Oldenburg, can you imagine? Okay? Uh, what is that? You see? So the Germans are not occupied by someone else, but the political arrangements have split them up and they feel that this is uh, hurting them. And why should this be? Um, Look at all this. Here are all the rulers of Germany that got together for a convention in 1864. Here's Yeah, (laughs) Who needs all the... Like, like what is it? Now, some of them have big territories and some of them were rulers of a land the size of a postage stamp. Okay. So, uh, like, it's the 19th century, it's not the 9th century. Why do we have all this Mishigas over here? Um, that's how the Germans uh, see it. But on the other hand, Metternich was very wise. He was a German, and he himself said, like this if the Germans get together, it would be bad for everybody. Wasn't he smart? You hear what I said? He was German, and he said, I guess it's better for everybody. Go back to the previous map. Yeah, this is good. You know why? Germany doesn't have a nationalism. It's the land of poets and universities and writers and Goethe and Schiller and, you know, uh, 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 what, what am I thinking of, Strauss? Get it? That's the good old Germany of yesteryear. And, you know, beer, <laughs> you know, and, and all the rest of it. If Germany gets together, it, it, it's not good even for Germany. And the truth of the matter is, as we all know, it, you know, uh, d- 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 by the time this is all over, Germany's wiped out, right, man? Look, 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 allies bombed Germany, as you, as you know. So, who was right? Who was right? Um himself is the foreign minister of the Austrian Empire. Austrian Empire, once he start talking about nationalism, look at this. This is no joke. This is Hungarian. This is no joke. Germans, Czechs, Italians, uh, Hungarians, Romanians, uh, Croatians, uh, uh, Polish, uh, Ukrainian, and I don't even know all these things. You know what I'm saying? Get it? You know, wait, 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 Bosnia, oh my goodness. You know, Bosnia and Herzegovina and you know, Mazda. That's the Austro-Hungarian Empire. If everybody's nationality is going to go for themselves, what's going to You understand? It'll be a, a war of everybody against everybody. And so, what are we supposed to do about all this? And then, there develops at this time another suppressed demon lurking below the surface, that no one paid any attention to, and that was the proletariat. Because now, after Napoleon falls, and after French Revolution starts the Industrial Revolution, the Industrial Revolution simply means capitalism. And capitalism simply means you take all the people off the farms, because now there's no more serfdom, they can come to the cities, uh, and, and they work for a penny a, a, a week. You know why? Because in the countryside you get a penny a month. Says so a penny a week. Aye, a penny a week is starving. I'm not making them work. I'm not making them work. They're coming to me. And so it's the golden age of capitalism, or if you prefer, the dark ages of capitalism, the sweatshops and all the other things like this, and it was pure capitalism, the, the workers had no rights, and therefore, all of a sudden, millions of people are being exploited and living lives worse than they ever lived before. And it's supposed to be the modern era after the French Revolution, and it's not, well, how, how is all this? The Four Merits, as we call it, the, the era of this period, the 20s the 30s, the 40s and the 1800s, sees the Industrial Revolution hit Western and Central Europe big time. So, all of a sudden, they're factories, and soon they're going to be producing the railroads and the steel and every other item. The Jews will get very big into the textiles. Get it? But therefore, people hate the Jews because they're the ones who own the factories. And since they're capitalists, as ruthless capitalism, because that was totally legal at that time, ruthless capitalism. So, if you live in Central Europe, especially in the Austrian Empire, the Jewish factory owners are like this. Why well, should I swear to have 1,000 workers? I can bring in machines and have 100 workers. See, so fire everybody, and now they hate the Jew because they brought in the machines. Okay? And worse than that, why should I pay an adult a penny a week? I can hire a little kid and pay him half a penny a week. If you have the, the terrible child labor things. Okay? It was, uh, so, it was just a terrible time. Uh, take a look at the next picture. These are little kids working in the uh, mines. It's like, it's like the Jews under Pharaoh. In the 1800s. You get it? It was 100% legal. This is how communism and socialism started. Because said this like, capitalism has turned, turned life into a nightmare. And there are many others I'll just these are two very graphic examples. And so you have the inchoate beginnings, the inchoate beginnings of a class consciousness, which is something that never existed before. So you're not a peasant, and you're not a Frenchman, you're a member proletariat, proletariat worker. Who told you that? Jewish intellectuals and others. Guys with college, college education, but not college degrees, or sometimes Karl Marx had a college degree, actually. To young intellectuals, like Marx, class is real, and nationalism is baloney, right? The same boss is doing this will tell you go and sacrifice for Germany, for Italy, for Austria, for France. And look what he's doing to your, your relatives. Look what he's doing to you. And you're stupid enough to fall for that. Don't you see what's happening? That's how it goes. You follow? Uh, in the United States of America, just as an aside, this did not happen because we had such a wide open economy that these kind of notions didn't take, even though they were appropriate, at least in the first half of the 19th century. I think I told you this. Abraham Lincoln made a speech in the 1830s in which he said, how come there are no unions in America? Because at that time there are no unions. And he said, the reason is, everybody who's a laborer now is thinking tomorrow he's going to get money and become an employer. I don't want any labor laws, <laughs> you know, uh, hampering my unfettered ability to stick it to the other guy. So it's like Salah Shabbat, he says, they're doing it to me, but one day I'll do it to to, to, that, to the other new ones, you know? And he said, "There at the chadashim. This is a certain mentality over here. And this is the world in which Jews and others are finding themselves in a very unusual uh, 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 mix. Uh, this young Karl Marx, who can't stand this, and is, uh, had a PhD in philosophy, by the way, and uh, is trying to come up with a theory to explain this. All you know and I know, it came to Marxist, um, what do you call it? Uh, communism, dialectical materialism. So here and there, um, if you get to the period I'm talking about, uh, localized episodes of violence break out in the 1840s already all over Europe. Little things. Here, 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 here. Uh, as manifestations of the inchoate but disparate forms of dissatisfaction with the status quo. Uh, the, the funny fact is, the real fact is, that these dissatisfactions on the part of different groups result in the groups fighting each other more than the state and the status quo. Because nationalism is a poisonous business in Europe. Uh, if I'm if I'm Polish. And I want to make an uprising, but here are the Ukrainians. Let's kill them first. <laughs> you follow? Or here are the Russians. Or the Lithuanians. Let's get them first. So local hatreds, of which you and I, being Americans, have no idea. Maybe some people here from Eastern Europe, they know a little bit about it. But uh, flourish even today And kalbachomer back then. Today, <coughs> Europe is a much neater place. And the reason is because after the Second World War, Stalin, unilaterally, just drove a lot of people from A to B and B to A. Meaning, he said, all Polacks get out of Ukraine. They pushed them into Poland. All Ukrainians get out of Poland. Oh, now it's a neat map. You see what I'm saying? But on the other hand, Stalin did put a lot of Russians in Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, and, and, and Ukraine. So that's the trouble you have now. Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? It makes it unbelievable. It's not only the Israeli-Arab question. That's the one they keep calling our attention to. It's all over the world. China has this problem. They don't want to talk about it you know, with, the, with the Muslims and the eastern parts. They don't want to talk about it. All these countries, that, the, the Burma has a problem with the, with the Chinese that they were persecuted. You know, th- th- this is how it goes. Unless you have a totally neat picture where all of Group A lives in A and all of Group B lives in Group in B, you're going to have uh, uh, troubles. And, and that's what happens. A classic example, I always love this, is the dumb Polak schlacht uprising against the Austrians in 1846. Polish said that Poland's been stuck by everybody, by Russia, Austria, and Poland. Let's have an uprising and kick the Austrians out of Galicia and we'll take over. Who said this? The Polish. Who's the Polish? The, the nobles and their hangers on um, because they're the educated Polish class. And they're the ones that have Polish consciousness. The nobles always had the Polish consciousness. Uh, they're the ones who know the, the literature and they fought for Poland, very patriotic, they know all the songs. And so on and so forth. Who are these people? About 20,000 uh, or 30,000 nobles. And anyway, what? Yeah, but they're still living like the Middle Ages. They own the peasants and exploit them like it was back in not in the 1800s, but in the 800s. So, what happens when they say, like this, let's launch an uprising against Austria, kick the foreigners out, all join us over here? All the Austrians have to do is like this tell the peasants, if you kill these guys, we're not going to say a word. And all the peasants go and kill all the nobles. You know see? Look at this. They come to the Austrian headquarters. Look, we hear the heads. <laughs> you know, give us a dollar. You get it? What What happened to the uprising? Whoops! They're so dumb. The The nobles, they thought, oh, the peasant. I told you before. They don't feel Polish. They feel they exploited people. And all they know is they live near the river. You know, on the other side of the uh, 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 of the forest. You know, they have no, con- no no national consciousness. Here, here's a. They're They're coming with with the the Austrians are saying like this whatever you steal from the master, you can keep. <laughs> if I, so they didn't have to send an army to fight them. As a matter of fact, by the time it's over, the Polish nobles will come to the Austrians and say, save us from our own people. That shows you an unbelievable mishmash. You want to have a national uprising, but your own people, you'll be gonna, you haven't worked out your serfdom issues <laughs> and all the rest of it. So uh, that's why it's a dumb unsuccessful Polish uprising against Austria. The nationalists therefore realize that they must create better conditions. For the lower classes of the latter to take on nationalist consciousness, this is the beginning, you might say, of the modern social welfare state. You want your own people to be on your side, you gotta treat them better. How much better? We're fighting that question till today. You know, do you want to raise the welfare? You want to lower the welfare? You want to increase the Medicare? You you know, we're fighting how much the question down till today. But the fundamental origins of all this in Europe certainly are the desire to have. The masses adopt the consciousness that the elites wish them to have. Uh, and in order to do that, you have to give them... Uh, who's, who's the one who starts this in serious Bismarck. Okay, of all people. Bismarck had a card that says, Audubon Bismarck Right-Wing Reactionary. He's proud of that. That's what he said on his card. You understand? Right-Wing Reactionary. And he started the Social Security. And he started, yeah, and he st- Social Security. And the unemployment insurance. And the equivalent of the Medicare. And the Medicaid. And all the other... And welfare. Bismarck started why? I want them to feel German and they should support the conservatives. So you don't have to vote for the socialists, all the rest of what are they going to give you? See, the workers aren't really socialists. They just want to give me, give me, give me. That's what Bismarck said, which was kind of true. So, um, anyway, Europe is getting very complicated. That's the point I'm trying to say. So if you're Jewish and it's after the French Revolution in Europe, especially outside of France, what, what are you supposed to support? <laughs> you know? Are you supposed to support the king? or the commoners, the, the nationalists, or the racists, or the, like, what am I saying? Which, just tell me which team I'm supposed to be on. But there's no answer to that, because everybody's against everybody. Meanwhile, the liberal bourgeoisie, that's the middle class, who don't care for the peasantry, and they dislike the proletariat, these are your um, shopkeepers, store owners, like I said yesterday, uh, you know, semi-market, uh, tow pizza, uh, you know, gas station, meaning, I, I get up every day and work, and I'm employing people and oh, all the rest and the taxes are too high and so on and so forth, so why am I, why does everybody want to give me, give me, give me Uh it's all take from me, take from me, take from me, they, that's who they are so they have contempt for the uh, working class as it were um, the liberal bourgeoisie is in, increasingly dissatisfied with the non-liberalist absolutist regimes uh, for their own reasons meaning, meaning, okay, I'm a good citizen, how come I can't express my, my opinion in the newspaper why can't ever read like, what's really going on? Why do the nobles and Mendenet guys tell me I should stick my nose out of politics? I, I pay taxes. I'm a player. I'm a serious person. I own land. I'm not a nut. How come I'm excluded from the process? And how come I can't have freedom of expression? You guys should not have freedom of expression. The workers, God forbid. But me, right? Like I said before, I, I pay this and this amount of taxes and I own this and this amount of land. I should be part of the, part of the game. The bourgeoisie wants freedom of speech and freedom of the press. That's part of who they are. How can they criticize the state when its policies seem wrong-headed? And to them, you know, if you're making a mistake in business, you go bankrupt. So if the country's making a mistake, intelligent people should be able to say, I'm calling you to account. You know, why is the government doing this? Why did they do that? It just goes against your ethos if you're a business person. You see, things aren't working, and it's being covered up, and it just bothers you. So then you have, in addition to that, the idealistic Democrats, usually educated people who want a wider franchise they say the liberals are too focused on their own little, uh, you know, chevra. like I say before, only the people who own a store and employ three people should vote. <laughs> right? They say, no, everybody, all males anyway, all males should, should vote because uh, they're more idealistic. It's not like the regimes are headed by brilliant Plato-like administrators of, uh, and national leaders. I'm going to tell you something. The emperor of Austria had 20 seizures a day Look at this. Ferdinand was the eldest son of Francis, as a result of the fact that his parents were double first cousins? They didn't know that stuff. Epilepsy, hydrocephalus, neurological problems, and a speech impediment. He's the Emperor of Austria. Which means he's not. Which means Metternich and the other guys are running the law, he's a puppeteer. You know, marionette. Isn't that funny? Did the Kaiser. No wonder things are falling apart. The guy in charge is not in charge. I'm serious. He he, he, he I don't know what he had, but he had twenty seizures a day. So, uh, you're, you 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 know, you just are what you are. Uh, then there's another group that's dissatisfied with the status quo. Not the liberals, and not the Democrats, and not the Metternich and not the nationalists, and not the peasants. It's a different group, the Jews. <laughs> right? Well, who cares about that? Compared to the problems I just described, so, so the Jews can't get hogba, you know, like big deal, <laughs> right? Okay. Go tell Karl Marx that you know the Jews are not allowed to become uh, pharmacists. "Ah, You've got world problems over here. The world Jews worry about the stupidity of this kind of business. You see, Maternich is warning: if nationalism allowed full expression, if it buttresses itself through democracy and social welfare, because democracy will bring nationalism. Okay, and it'll bring social welfare because the only way you can get the masses to identify with the national cause is to give them money. Passions will come so stirred up that the result will be wars and mass deaths, and he was right. Because after Mennonek falls in power, there's like a quick slide from 1850 to 1914. There was no everybody knows there was no reason in the world for Europe to go to war against itself in 1914. They controlled the whole world. I made this speech many, I'm sure you've heard me say it. But right? you look at the map of the world in nineteen fourteen, and five or six or seven countries in Europe own everything. Between the British Empire, the French Empire, the Germans, the Belgians, and the other. They owned the Velt, They had their control of the uh, natural resources. All of Africa, except for one country. All of Asia, except for two countries. Um, the British took over, as we know, the continent of Australia. To give you an example, the Japanese joined the club and became honorary Europeans. And so they, they stuck it to the Koreans and the Chinese. You know, this, it was a world of the haves and the have-nots. And the Europe was the haves. So why did they go to war? Because they shot the stupid guy in Sarajevo. You know, you get what I'm saying? that's why you upset the whole apple cart. Anybody who's that in laws know what I'm talking about. You don't throw the whole thing over because of one stupid incident, right? And they did. And Metternich says, it's "For the graves, I told you." He made fun of me, and this and the other. If you allow nationalism to build up, and in Europe nationalism is impossible to I'll repeat, impossible to solve. When World War One is over, Woodrow Wilson will show up and say, "Oh, we're going to make everything another. Then he found that the Germans living in Czechoslovakia, the Czechs are living in Germany, the Russians living in Poland, the Poles living in Russia. What do you do? And he found that nobody was nice. Everybody said, free my people, but I get to stick it to the people around me. And Woodrow Wilson threw his hands up like, what do you do? You You see? What do you do? So, as I said before, um, if the German states united, it would be bad. It turned out, you know, Hitler turned out to be bad for for, for Germany, as we know. And uh, look at the next picture. What was the final result? Germany was, was destroyed. Okay? I know they killed all of us, but it wasn't good for them. Uh, think of the old Germany with all those beautiful buildings and all that kind of stuff from once upon a time. and they were, All people did was drink beer and make poems and build universities and come up with great uh, cultural things like that. Uh, that was better. They, were, they, were, they, they weren't a problem for anybody. Okay? Uh, you had Prussia in there, whatever. But uh, overall, Germany could not threaten the world because it wasn't united. When it became not united, it became possible to threaten the world. Then you needed somebody with great wisdom to say, I'm not going to have any wars. Germany's fine, and they'll build themselves up and they shouldn't get involved in any crisis with anybody. They weren't smart enough to have that. Bismarck was around for 18 years after he uh, won his wars, and the result was that he was able to hold the fort a little bit, but as soon as he left office, the Kaiser started, and then it was a quick roll to World War One, and everything. And by the way, what happened in World War One? They all killed each other. Uh, Austria, Prussia, Russia did a Polish firing squad. You know They all shot each other. And so the Franziosen went down, and the Kaiser went down, and the Tsar went down, as we know. So who, who won in the end? Nobody won. And from a Jewish point of view, before the war was better. Under Franziosen was a million times better than later after the war and under Hitler, obviously. Obviously. So in which direction lies progress? In a liberal direction? It's not so simple. It's not so simple. And if you're Jewish, it's definitely not so simple. By the late eighteen forties, such views as I just mentioned in Metternich are out of favor. And in eighteen forty eight, a spontaneous series of different types of uprising and revolutions break out all over Europe just like it got a fever. In one country after another, the country and the and the revolutions had nothing to do with each other. It's true that when they heard us here, that might have helped over here, but you know, they weren't organized with each other whatsoever. Each one was responding to a specific nutty situation that was unique to that particular place. It just all happened to break out in the same year. Uh, in, in France, for example, which is the first place, the revolution broke out. The Jews had it good. Louis Philippe was the king, I told you yesterday. He was the bourgeois king. He's the one who recognized Judaism as an official religion. He, he's a, he, he bankrolled the, the synagogues and the rabbis all the rest of it. You know, he made it just like the Catholic church gets money from France. So does the Jewish religion, a fully recognized religion. The Jews had no trouble with him, but a lot of Frenchmen had trouble with him. He favors big business and not small business. He was so narrow minded he didn't even have he wasn't even a Republican, you get it? He was one of these guys. The only one, JP Morgan. That's who it is. Because he himself was a brilliant businessman and just personally was a zillionaire. He was a very good investor. And he was only interested, you know, in the in the Trump level. You get it? Nobody below. He didn't bother to do what Trump does or try to cultivate it below. Just just like so he alienated everybody. I think I told you at that time. Out of 30 million people, 200,000 could vote. Yeah. So what's that? Uh, in France, it's an uprising against him who is seen as favoring Wall Street and not even Main Street. The Republican Party is supposed to represent not only Wall Street, which they shortly do, but also Main Street, which is the regular guy, like I say, who owns a, a, a cleaning business or something like that. Uh, the French Democrats, they're broken up in a hundred ways also, the French. The liberals, the Democrats, the socialists, this and the other the Democrats want to vote. They say, let's go to the next one, the British did it 15 years ago. In England, you used to have a situation where 10 people vote, and it caused a lot of bad feeling. And finally, it's a famous episode of British history, finally, 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 in 1832, they passed the reform bill, in which they got rid of the rotten boroughs and all that sort of thing, and uh, they made it that a whole lot more people could vote. There still was a lot they couldn't, but it made a whole lot of people That's the British genius for doing what? taking the steam out. Don't let the volcano build up. They've always been good. They, they're always five minutes ahead of the explosion they leave the house. That's English famous. They got out of India, you know, all that. Palestine, you know, they didn't do so. But generally speaking, they always get out just in time. So, uh, but France not. Okay? Uh, the socialists won. Bernie Sanders. Okay? Uh, Louis Blanc, the head of socialists, he wants the, a right to work. That means everybody. the government should pay everybody to be employed, which will bankrupt the government in two minutes. Okay. No, but that's what the socialist want, So they're fighting for that. So you have ups and downs. The first, rep- the, the 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 second republic, the second of this. By the time it's all over in France, February, March, April, May, June, July, and so on and so forth. By the time you get to the end of the year, it's Napoleon again. <laughs> uh, believe it or not, Napoleon's nephew was elected president of France, the president of the republic, and within two years he turned himself into the Emperor Napoleon the Third, as he calls it. Right? even though he was no Napoleon. Get it? That's everybody knows. I mean, it's not, it, it, even look at him, yeah. But he, he was no Napoleon. But he wasn't. But this is in France. He wasn't against the Jews. I'll tell you something amazing. A rabbi came, uh, rabbi Tully, Nelson Friedland from Lithuania, and went to see Napoleon. He said, you should help the Jews get back Eretz to and fulfillment of biblical prophecy, all the rest. So he said, right now, I'm not getting along with the Turks, but if it ever changes, call me up, and I'm willing to help. Like, who you know, you know, he's a funny guy. All right, funny guy. But on the other hand, uh, he's the one who tried to conquer Mexico, and, uh, and he did conquer Vietnam. other no, he was an imperialist, and and, all that. and he was a dictator. Because by the time the French Revolution, with the democrats and the socialists and this and, that and the other, he go back to Bonapartism, where a general or a political military dictator just seizes control. And then what was the revolution all about? Okay. So again, you have let's go to the next one, a Bonapartist climax. Which Karl Marx said famously, referring to this. He said history first comes out as a tragedy and then as a farce. Meaning the first Napoleon was a tragedy. Greek tragedy. Right? Would you agree Napoleon's a Greek tragic figure? He's a classic Greek tragic figure. He's a great hero with a flaw, a tragic flaw that brought him down. Right? Napoleon fits that description. The second guy's a farce. And you know? Louis Napoleon with the you know something like that. Everybody knows. He was a riverboat gambler. Okay? Um And so this is what the revolution turned into. But fortunately, it didn't affect the Jews. Because at that time, the Jews were already part of France. And so you see over here, some Jews were Democrats, some Jews were Socialists, some Jews were Monarchists, and so on and so forth. The Jews are part of everybody else. And when the revolutionary government took over, Adolf Premier, who was one of the leading Jews, became the Minister of Justice, like the Attorney General. He was a famous French Jewish lawyer. He fought for the Jewish civil rights. He was an assimilationist, like it's a quid pro quo. But you never know... The French are funny. He helped start Kol Yisrael Chavirim, uh, the Alliance Israel Universal, which did a lot of bad things, but they also started the first Jewish purchase of land in Israel, didn't they? Mikve Israel. I think some of you know what I'm talking about. Not far from Tel Aviv. That's the first, in the 1860s, first thing that started, the first little ball rolling. <coughs> it's not compared to later, but it's the, the, the first ball rolling. And so, uh, and he's the attorney general. In Italy... You have a whole bunch of revolutions break out and nationalist uprisings because they want to kick the oppressors out. That's the Austrians, but the Austrians crush them. This is the famous General Radetzky. That's the Radetzky march. Yeah. Now I tell you, turn it off. He's having a good time. Yeah. Listen, don't play. Don't play this around the, an Italian. <laughs> you get it? Because the Italians think of big armies, all the rest of it, and that's good. <laughs> you know, finish them all. One, two, three. Okay? Uh, there aren't too many Austrian victories. I think this doesn't work. Hello? <laughs> How's it doing that? Uh, finish it off. Hello? Okay, <laughs> and that's it. Uh, don't play it around an Italian. Uh So the Italian, let's put it this way, the French thing turned into a farce, the Italian revolutions turned into a military disaster, but there aren't too many Jews in France and Italy. Central Europe, especially Austria, that's most located to the Jews. The Jews in Germany, Austria, and in Hungary, because that's a large Jewish population. In March of 1848, a liberal and democratic uprising took place in Vienna. Metternich was deposed with surprising ease. The rebels set up a government and passed many democratic laws including civil rights for the Jews. Whoa. That's a... It's a the, the, whoa. That's an unexpected. It has been building up for years. Now, I want to emphasize, they didn't make the revolution to help the Jews. They did this, 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 just like in 1790. But one of the items, one of the things that has to be changed is the fact that the Jews don't have any civil rights. The leaders of the revolution include Jewish intellectuals, which is amazing in a country like Austria. Okay? Um... Here's uh, the famous Adolf Fischoff, who uh, was the, the the leader of the Democrats. Um, great man. And uh, if they were to listen to him, Austria would still be around today. And uh, he said like this, we have to get rid of the old stupid regime. Keep the emperor, but with a modernized, sort of like at the beginning of French Revolution, You know, make a constitutional system and make it f- fair for all the peoples in the empire. The Hungarians should get a fair deal, the Czechs, the Poles and all the rest. Of it. Give everybody a federal system and then it'll work out best. Um, This is unprecedented, what I just described. These are Jews participating in European politics, especially in German-speaking countries, with a popular following. Uh, I thought we just had the Hep Hep rise yesterday. I just thought we had this whole speech I gave how the Germans loathe the Jews and all the rest of it. Turns out, if you have an education and you make a, a good case how it's good for the public, the public will listen. At least sometimes. At least sometimes. Um... The 1848 story is a very complicated. I'm um, crazy for taking it on, so that's why I'm not going to do that. I, it's, it's, look, 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 I mean, I could kick myself when I was sitting today writing it up. I said, "How stupid could you have been?" Uh, Vindisch Schreit suppresses the Czechs. He's the leader of the Czechs. Kossuth is the leader of the Hungarians. He breaks away from Austria, but then Jelacic is the leader of the Croatians, and he backs Austria because the Hungarians want to have independence and crush the Croatians. <laughs> you get it? Vindisgrad goes and, and destroys uh, the, the uh, Czech uprising in Prague and then in, in Vienna, and then Hurban lo- launches the Slovak uprising against the Hungarians because they've been. Get it? You're know saying it's, it's too complicated, right? Meaning, it's, it's, the whole Austrian Empire broke up into like a chaos. It's very interesting, but it's too complicated to explain here. So, suffice it to say, the whole century went nuts. Uh, by the time the story's completely played out, um, all the revolutions were crushed. And the right-wing Metternich types came back triumphant. Uh, the democratic laws and the new constitutions in Hungary and all the other places canceled. It was like Prussia all over again. You go back to square one. Okay? And uh, they got rid of the emperor with the mental problems and they put in his nephew 18 years old, Franz Joseph. That's when he was 18 years old. Okay? And uh, Schwarzenberg became the uh, prime minister Metternich, Stark type like that, a very intelligent person. But he died uh, very quickly, and uh, we're getting rid of all the revolutionary business and all the civil rights and all that kind of stuff. And the Jews held up their hands in Austria and Hungary. And oh, they! After all this business, literally back to square one. Uh, can't get married again in Bohemia. Can't own a business in Galicia. You know, is is, is that where we're going? Not exactly. It turns out the new emperor, who is eighteen, nineteen years old. Wasn't really anti-Semitic. He's an unusual Habsburg, okay, and his reign would continue for seventy years. 1848 to 1916, it's almost seventy years. He was on the throne, young, middle old. So since he was there, he would become increasingly favorable to the Jews. It's just an interesting story. So legally speaking, all the laws favoring the Jewish civil rights, were, were yanked after 1848. Um, but in reality, the regime already was letting up. You understand? Those Lamaisa, they didn't practice those laws anymore. under Francia. You could get married. You could own a business. You could own land. You could do this. You go to store. If you're Jewish, you could walk on the street, and so on and so forth. lemaisa Okay? And uh, social discrimination continued all the way through. Um, I think I told you the other day, President Grover Cleveland, in the 1880s, appointed an American ambassador to Vienna. A non-Jew, his wife was Jewish, uh, can't come. No, because in the the high level, in the court circles, there's no Jews. No unconverted Jews. Uh, By the end of his reign... Is already changing a little bit. you know. And Rothschild can get in, you know? but regular Jews, not. And many Jews converted in order to get in. I remember Mahler, in order to be the, the uh, conductor of the Vienna Philharmonic, had to convert. You know? It mean, is what it is. But if you're not looking for that, and who is? In real world. It? If you're just looking for this and for this, regular life, middle class, uh, it was a Ghanaian. And therefore all the Hungarian Jews are looking back and like saying, Oh, so nice, so beautiful in my grandparents' time. In some ways, it was. Hungary is part of the Austrian Empire. We've been talking about all the terrible discrimination, not after 1848. Right? 1848. Now, um, it took a while for this to be enacted in laws, but it already started right afterwards. You know, it's too complicated to get into, but the Jews in Hungary were in a bad shape in 1848, because they live in Hungary, they want to be loyal to the Emperor, but the Hungarians are uprising and making another country under, under Louis Kosciusz, Kosciusz And who should they back? And some Jews went this way, and some Jews, well you can imagine, the Rabbonim generally said should back the, the Kaiser, and the other one said should back the rebels, and it was a huge war. The Austrians couldn't even reconquer Hungary. Right? The Austrians, there was, was such a bitter feeling, in so many Hungarians, the Austrians cannot reconquer Hungary, so they asked the Russians to help. The Russian in 1849, Tsar Nicholas I, sent a Russian army of like a million men to crush the Hungarians, and then he handed over to Franz Joseph. That's, that's what happened. So it was a crazy year. And just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, this is Jewish politics de la Bamba. He says, So when it was all over, Hungary lost its rights, it was occupied by the Austrian army, and was subject to a bureaucratic rule from Vienna for 20 years. And the Jews, because they supported the revolution, it was said, were fined like $10 million, which is a lot of money at that time. Like today you'd say, you know, $200 million, $300 million. At least where I come from, it's a lot of money. Not in Baltimore, but you know. And uh uh additional money. And uh, so the Jewish community was fined, with and they have to collectively come up with that, you know, the, all the kahillas have to come up with it. Like, it's like a big penalty, like from the old days. But after a year or maybe two years, Franz Yosef then said like this, I don't need the money, so I'll give it back to the Jewish community to use for Jewish educational purposes. Right? The problem is, do you see where I'm going? TA, TI, Beth Tephila, Solomon Schechter, define Jewish educational purposes. The fight over the money led to so much bitterness among the Jews that they split into two groups, the Orthodox and the, and the, and the Jewish. You understand? There were two, really, many don't know this unless you have Hungarian family background. In Hungary, by the time this is over, this is the late 1860s, took 20 years for the story to play out. By the time we get to the 1860s, as a result of the money question, uh, there developed a strong Austrit movement among the Orthodox, and they basically said like this, we want nothing to do with the other Jews uh, to be in the same room with them as Trafe and uh, we are a different religion. We're a different religion. And the conservative, it wasn't, wasn't reformed, it was a conservative, the neolog. So They said, the conservative Jews, said, I guess, we're Jewish, and all the rest, and no, you're not Jewish. And they said to the emperor, we're Jewish, we control the communities, all the rest. And so the frum said, I guess, fine, you be the Jews, we're the other. You know, call us the, the Martians. You know, they called the Orthodox, called the Orthodox. This is the Jewish name, this is the Orthodox. And it became an article of faith, that you have two of everything in any Hungarian community the two JCC you wouldn't have a problem in baltimore with the J.C. Open Chavez, if you had like the like a budapest the North have their own jcc their own Sunday hospital their own cemeteries obviously their own schools obviously what else is left their own Levendale, the whole nine yards you see them? and they were and they took money out of their pocket and they said to reform take this the stupid 200 million you use it. And that's how they started the JTS of Budapest, which is called the, the, whose name is the Franz Josef Rabbinical Seminary. Okay, But the point I'm getting, so that's a Jewish denouement you know, of a story. But he was a nice guy. He gave him the money back. That's what I'm trying to say, you know? He gave him the money back. So, um, what happened in Germany? Same thing happened in Prussia. Except the kings were more anti-Semitic. Mildly anti-Semitic. So de facto, after the 1848 Uprisings were all crushed, but de facto discrimination ceased. So the Jews were big beneficiaries, maybe among the only, of the 1848 uprisings, not officially. It took 20 years to get it enacted into law. You understand? In Austria and Hungary and in Prussia and all these places, you get to 1868, 1869, then you see a whole bunch of laws passed. It's very interesting. And the laws say, like France in 1790. The Jews from now on are complete and total citizens with the same rights as anybody else, hundred percent across the board. Was it honored? It was. From then on, Jews in Central Europe, in in Germany, in Austria Hungary, um, had real civil rights. This is why people were, you know, this is why some people remember an old generation, grandparents, great grandparents, were loyal to the Kaiser. You see, or in Hungary, Austria Hungary, very loyal. Okay, Rabbi Herzberg. <laughs> And this shoel served in the Austro-Hungarian Army, and he was a big fan of, of of Franz Josef. The Emperor was there for seventy years, almost sixty-eight years. These Jews used to call him Franz Josef. You understand? <laughs> so well, that's, that's endearment. You get it? And uh, so uh, they didn't do that about Franz the First. They didn't do that about Metternich. They didn't do it about Louis the Sixteenth or Louis the 18th. You see They didn't do it about the Kaiser in Germany, who didn't really like Jews. But they did about Franz Josef. So it's funny how these things played out. And what it really means is that after 1848, even the conservative regimes in Europe realized, you can't go on like it used to be. I can't be an emperor or king of a country with everybody hating me. I've got to accommodate to this at some level. At some level. We've got to make some concessions. Obviously, they want the minimum because I've got to make some concessions because you can't have a polity. And I can't have the Jews, among other things, can't have Jews running around like a Martian group who don't have any status, who are in the economy, but not in the economy within. It's got to be clear the cobwebs. Everybody in the country is the same, at least legally. I'm not inviting them to my house. I don't want to marry my family. I don't want to see them at my club, all the rest of it. But the civil rights they have is not two water fountains. You know, It's not two park benches. Civil rights they have. Uh, And this is what happened. Now, uh, as a result, by 1870, every single country in Europe did the same thing. Usually for the same reasons, uh, Norway, Sweden, uh, Denmark, we hated the Jews, did it. Uh, uh, Belgium and Holland, Italy had done it earlier for liberal reasons. The founders of modern Italy were liberals, not democrats, and so on across the board. You know, Greece, all these countries, with one gigantic exception. That's Russia, which is the biggest exception because it has all the Jews. Okay, the Russian Empire included all of Eastern Europe: Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Ukraine, Belarus, Poland. You know. There, the czars, as we all know, would make no exception, and down to 1917. Which means, what does that indicate? Uh, Well, the fact that Jews got civil rights everywhere, listen closely, shows that eventually the ideas of the French Revolution triumphed. Okay? Liberty, equality, and fraternity. But the fact that Russia held out shows that there remained a powerful right-wing sentiment in Europe which did not accept the French Revolution and viewed it as something bad, anti-French Revolution would prove to be a powerful movement too. And Hitler is a representative of that. Okay, he's an extreme representative. Okay, but extreme, obviously. But there was, for a long, all through the eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, down to World War Two, at least, at least, a strong movement out there that says everything associated with the French oh, it was a bad idea. And who came up to say that the the Jews should have civil rights? Now they own everything, and they control everything. That's just terrible. As for the European Jews, after 1848, they became prominent in European politics in almost every country, and almost always in the liberals. Because the liberals were the ones who fought for the French Revolution and gave them the right. Well, actually, they joined the conservatives. The conservatives against the Revolution. It was up to them. The Jews would have no rights. You follow? Jews who go to the university will in the West, be producers, not consumers, producers of European culture, particularly in journalism, science and medicine, maybe even music. So, I'm describing something that never existed. The Jews always used to live in Europe, but they played no role whatsoever in European culture. The Jew lived in his own culture. He wrote on the Gemara. The Jews are not participating in the literature and the science to write. Now, all of a sudden, this is unexpected. After the French Revolution, Jews are writing the books. They're coming up with the ideas. They're coming up with the inventions. They're creating brand new ways of technology and making money. That's what, that's what they're doing. You understand? They're creating, for example, the department stores and the railroads and the uh, uh, I don't know, you know, the new types of investment companies and all this kind of business. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes they'll be better off economically than the non-Jews. This was not part of the plan of French Revolution. You understand? This was not what the Emperor Joseph II I told you about at the beginning uh, of this whole series uh, when they started thinking and Christian Wilhelm Dome who wanted an upgrade an upgrade for the Jews on a quid pro quo basis. Their plan was the Jews should eventually blend in conspicuously in, I'm sorry, blend in and to be inconspicuous until they converted and intermarried. That's why they wanted civil rights. They were willing to entertain the notion of a civic upgrade in the Jews. The reality is more complex. What do I mean? Even Jews who are not Jewish. Let's go to the next one. The Israeli converted to Christianity. Everybody considered him a Jew. Heinrich Heine converted to Christianity. Everybody knew he's a Jew. He writes like a Jew in the poems. Karl Marx was an atheist. Atheist who hated Judaism. Everybody considered him a Jew. You see, They related to him as a Jew. And so, if you're Joseph II looking ahead in the crystal ball and said, what did I do? I created a monster. I created these Jews who now have access to all the levers of ideas. You know, the world of ideas is a free market. Agreed? If you write a book or an article and it gets traction, it gets traction. Doesn't matter who you are. You see? And oy vey, the wrong people are getting the traction. This is not what we, we bargained for. These, there are other Jews who cause even bigger revolutions. Sigma Freud? In other words, revolutions of the mind. Agreed? Revolutions of the mental. Um, revolution, Einstein, you know, revolutions of how you look, of of reality, this is definitely not what they had in mind when they said that we should give the Jews civil rights and and, and some level of equality. This is getting in a hand. And all of this led to a big backlash after 1870, because the story of Europe is the Jews eventually got the civil rights and then started the anti-Semitism, 1873, okay? And what's that? We went too far. Do you want to take it back? I don't want to take it back. Many say I want to take it back. And you want to, I don't take it back, but I hate the Jews. Went too far. It was a bad move. Let's uh, boycott them. Let's do this. Let's do that. Europe went through very anti-Semitic business. They didn't take away their laws. They threatened to, but they never did. They never took away the, the civil rights. Okay, Including in France. Uh, and as we all know, it wasn't good. Most Jews in Europe will cling to the French Revolution, appealing to its liberalism and universalism. They'll say, no, it's after French Revolution, it's a new world, liberty, equality, fraternity, we're just like everybody else, all the rest of it. But you know and I know it would not work out in the long run. Even France will go with Marshal Pétain, and they'll give all the Jews over to Hitler. You know, they all send them to Drancy, and for Drancy they send them to, 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 to uh, what do you call it, Treblinko. Okay? So, uh, what, what, what happened with that uh, dream? Well, it's not so it. Interestingly, other Jews a minority, I'm talking German Jews, German Jews, I repeat, interpreted the French Revolution and the rise of nationalism differently. There were some Jews who said like this, why did God now start a new thing called nationalism? That's a different way of looking at it, right? Why did the Rebundersholm create a thing that the Bulgarians, you've never heard of them, and the Lithuanians, they, never, they didn't know their own language, and the Estonians, and the Ukrainians, uh, how come all over Europe is popping up like mushrooms, something never existed before, called nationalism? maybe it's to enable us Jews to get Eretz Yisrael back. And that's Zvi Hirsch in and his famous book, Rishat Zion. Already in the 1830s, 1830s, he's writing to Rothschild, saying, you're the rich guy, buy Israel. Or at least buy a lot of land there, and we accept the Jews are. You know why? Because he said like this, if the French have a national, and the Italians have a national, and the Swiss have a national, the Jews can have a national. Right? If all of a sudden it's kosher, if it works for the Belgians and the Walloons and the Irish and the Welsh and the Norwegians, he, in his interpretation, says the hand of God. The French, this is very Jewish. This is, this is so Jewish it's ridiculous. But we can hear it. I think in this audience, we can hear it. The whole French Revolution was to help the Jews get Israel. <laughs> right? And as you know, Tzvi Hirsch Kalischer, everything in Israel Tzvi is named after him, right? Tirat Tzvi and all that. Uh, he's the founder of Zionism. He's a, the religious, the religious Zionist. His plan. He's in the 1830s. He's a Talmud of Rabbi Yehuda Aiger. He wants to bring back the carbon pesach. You see, that's part of the you which know, go back to Israel and start. A, listen, the, the Germans have their stupid torchlight praise. Nobody makes fun of them, right? They have their book burnings. Nobody makes fun of them. So I can't have a Carmen like that. Um, the Slovaks and the Croats, says, have a nationalism. We don't. Why has God stirred up this feeling which was never there before? What does it have to do with the Jews? The, the answer is obvious. That's one approach. Another Jew, coming from an atheist perspective, analyzes the failure of the French Revolution and its Germanic aftermath and the failure of Germany to accept a Thomas, the Jew on Thomas Jefferson terms. Meaning, I take you as you are, you have a civil rights because you're a human being and just don't break the law and be whatever you are, which they would never accept in Germany. You have to change. The Jew has to fake it, some degree. And the quid pro quo of self-denial, no, so I'll give you civil rights, but you have to deny who you really are, is a death formula, and therefore, this is wrong in principle. This is the Havrus of Karl Marx. The person who, together with Karl Marx, made communism. Moses Hess. Moritz Hess. Okay? who came from a, a non from semi from family. His wife was not Jewish, but he went through, he, he traveled all the, the stages in the desert to get to the Promised Land, if you understand what I'm saying. Uh, they made a new movie about Karl Marx. He's a big uh, character in it, in German, you know. He was a big macher in the communist movement, and somewhere along the lines he says, what is this communism, Marxism? It's, it's like you can, you can join, but you have to stop being Jewish. What, what, what is that? You saying? Why? And he sees the German workers, because he was a communist, working on behalf of the German workers, they're anti-Semitic. So why am I doing this? Right? And the French Revolution, everything comes out of this, it's turning a bad direction. Turns out they won a liberal war for everybody but the Jews. And so, he's atheist, I told you, he's a communist. The only solution, Medina Israel. <laughs> In 1862, he wrote a book nobody read called Roman Jerusalem. You can get it now. There it is. Uh, do I have the book? Yeah. Yeah, right? and Jerusalem. He says, you know, Europe won't accept you. Hitler will kill you and Stalin will, and Lenin will demand you, you give up being Jewish. So any of the isms won't work. It's the only thing we do we have our own country. He wasn't from, he has a whole section attacking San uh, Sans you know, who he knew and all that. But so what? What, what does this mean? Some Jews, not the majority, some Jews are coming out of the whole French Revolution experience and saying, from this I see, Europe is not working out. There's only one solution. Okay? There's only one solution. And I'll repeat, he's not coming from a religious uh, point of view whatsoever. Um, And uh, he wrote this book in 1862. Later in life, Theodore Herzl read the book. He said, if I knew the book, I wouldn't even start it. Somebody thought it all before me. You know what I'm saying? Uh, So, Zionism... Is a reaction to the French Revolution. It's a cynical reaction. It acknowledges that the ideals of Liberty, Equality, and Fraternity will not work at the level of the Jew in Europe. That's his thesis. Uh, Theodor Herzl, who was the correspondent of the main German newspaper in Paris, so he was like a you know George Will type. He, I'll say it again. He was the he had a cushy job. He's the, uh, Paris. You know, he's the correspondent for the Vienna. No, no, it's uh, fry Press. the Like the New York Times of Austria, uh, of Vienna. And he's in Paris, and he's during the Dreyfus trial. When they're breaking Dreyfus. Thing. And you know Dreyfus was innocent. And all the French newspapers are full of this. The free word, Libre parole. The Jews controlling the, the the eternal Jews. It's not Germany, it's France. And what does he say over here? He says, I give up on the French Revolution. I myself, he says, I'm assimilated. That's just who I am. It's too late for me. But... I don't want it for the others. Okay? It's not working out. But he's weird. Most French Jews believe in the revolution. And what's the end? Dreyfus is vindicated by Emil Zola. Took 10 years. Took 10 years. And was a famous writer who wrote, I accused the government of framing an innocent man because, you know, Dreyfus didn't do it. He only did it because he's Jewish. That's why they said he's innocent. They put him in Devil's Island where he's supposed to die from the heat. Uh, does everybody know what I'm talking about, or am I leaning with a young generation who has no idea what I'm referring to, right? And uh, you say Dreyfus, they might think, who knew as well? But, uh, uh, Emil Zou was not, well, not Jewish, and he didn't like Jews. He thought they're clannish and all that stuff. They said, why are you supporting Dreyfus? Because he's innocent. <laughs> they couldn't understand that. And he is one of famous, his famous line was, "Truth troops on the march. Truth troops on the march, and so nothing can stop it. And the man is innocent. And so if you're a French Jew, you say, I guess it took 10 years. But you see, the revolution was vindicated. Because Zola stood on the grounds of liberty, equality, and fraternity, and honesty, and incorruptibility, and everybody's, uh, you know, either innocent or guilty based on who you are. And not on who your origins are. Okay? Not on your origins are. Uh, but in the end, let's put it this way. What happened? Uh, Zola and the left won the trial, but then he was murdered by the right. You know what happened to Emil Zola? A workman who was a right winger, you know, like you say today, uh, you know, a talk show thing. A workman uh, played with his uh, coal. You know, remember that uh, anybody old enough to remember this? The coal, is supposed to, the, the poison goes out here, the flu, right? And he put it in the other way. So he choked him. Went to sleep and didn't wake up. So uh, what does that mean? French Revolution is not universally. Tri- France is split. France is split. Herzl sees all this and draws his own conclusion. The French Revolution was success in everything except the Jews. In everything except the Jews. To be accepted in Europe, Herzl discerns, the Jew has to embrace an unnatural self-reinvention. No healthy person wants to do that. All the healthy person is says is Leodam That's all I want. I don't want to rule anybody else. Right? I don't want to tell anybody else what to do. I don't want to, the French can do what they want in France. The Spanish can do it with my French. I want to be, you know, if I want to wear my sisters out, I wear my sisters out. If I don't wear my sisters out, I don't wear my sisters out. If I want to talk Yiddish, i talk Yiddish. Just my, this is the origins of the political Zionism because it doesn't work. In your eye, he lived in countries like Austria and France where the Jews had civil rights that can't stand the quid pro quo. You understand? It makes you neurotic. And Herzl was very neurotic. Okay? He was very neurotic. And his kids all committed suicide and things like that you don 't realize their books used to be written one hundred books used to be written yeah a hundred years ago hundred and twenty years ago on the Jewish self neurosis and the highway of suicides because they because can 't get accepted in this society yeah. i 'll tell you a story which is an extreme epitome of this i 'm the only nut that knows this. There was a guy named Robert Seaton Watson who was the editor of the London Times. Before that, in the early 1900s, he was the London Times correspondent for 10 years in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So he wrote a very, very interesting book in 1909 about the Austro-Hungarian Empire with a whole chapter on the Jews. Okay? He's not Jewish. And he says, in Hungary, there's a guy who's completely assimilated and all, maybe even converted, I don't remember, and he wants to take his friends. He has a couple of Geisha friends, she so wants to show him what a big spender he is, and thought She says, "I'll take you out for a night on the town, Budapest. You know, the 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 the, the party scene, you know, the the, the nightclubs, right? Budapest, the uh, nightclubs. You know, a uh, big nightclub scene. And uh, and uh, and uh, it's on me. You know, I'm paying. And they all go there. It's a shock. The whole place is closed. But it's nine o'clock. Everything is closed. It's Yom Kippur. <laughs> he feels so bad. He shoots himself." You get it? This is the neurosis. Right? He fell So, oh bad. How do he explained this? So multiply this by a million, you'll see where political Zionists come from in the West. Um, this is different than the Jews of Russia and just say, I gotta get out of there. These are people who are doing okay, but they're not doing okay here. I'm talking about a, a, a secular and not a religious perspective now. Uh of course Ralph Cook would disagree with me. He'd say Oh, really? It's a secular perspective? You know Ruff Cook's opinion. He says, All this thing I just told you, it's the ace or toe fooling them. <laughs> I'm serious. That's his, uh, that's his thesis. He says, When a Herzl says it's all this, is he really religious? You don't, you don't know it. You say, That's not true. I'm not religious at all. That's, that's the sheet of Ruff Cook. He said, That's what it is. He said, Because otherwise, you'd assimilate and, and, and join the others. If you're bothered by this, it's the Yetzir Tov uh, uh, pulling favors. Out. Usually it's the Eight Hara, but once in a while it's the Yetzir Tov. Okay? And he lived, I mean, Ralph Cook lives exactly in this era. In the late 1800s, early 1900s. That, that's, that, he's, he, that's his world. In the aftermath of the Second World War, the French Revolution was embraced politically in Western Europe. After they destroyed Hitler, the French Revolution became the, the uh, official political correctness standard. Truth to tell, even in Eastern Europe, officially, okay? So if you go, uh, you know, in Soviet Union, is opposed to anti-Semitism and religious discrimination, well, even though they lied, but, you know, but, but, but but that's what they said, okay? And remember, they would have a Jew come and see, we have a Yiddish newspaper, all that baloney that we uh, all remember. Truman and company became the new Metronics. The Americans said like this, we can't intervene every 20 years for another world war. Make an EU he made the NATO and he made the beginnings of the the common market, the EU. Why? If you don't all get together and suppress the nationalism like Madden, you'll have wars again. And so, as you know, the Americans talked to Europeans to give up the nationalism. France and Germany became friends. Belgium and Holland became friends. What does it matter which side of the border it's at? The main thing is everybody should have a good standard of living. That's the Western Europe of yesteryear. It's even the Western Europe of today. So Marshall and Axis and had to teach the Europeans, Hilchus Herz. Nationalism in this environment was deprecated; revolutionary Europeanness, not Frenchness, and other, was valorized. I had a French guy over at my house ten years ago, from guy. Nice, nice fellow. He happened to be in Baltimore for something or other, a science convention, from guy from Lyon, and he said, "I can't get over in America; they sing the national anthem at the baseball game." I said, "Why not?" France, the national anthem, eh, like that. See? That's how far the european this went. Okay? I'm just telling you. They, they, till this day, they think America is, like, weird for several reasons. One of them is we have this patriotism. They don't understand that. Uh, since the fall of communism, however, and now I'm coming to my end, and the emergence of Islam, and these are the two most important facts of the last 30 years of our lifetime, or recent years, that nobody foresaw. Most of us are old enough to know nobody foresaw. Communism would go down like a house of cards, right? They thought they're going forever. And that Islam would pop out of nowhere the way it is. Nationalism is now making a comeback, especially in Eastern Europe. Nationalism. Strong nationalism. Putin is the face of this. The reason he has any popularity if he has popularity is because he represents the Russian nationalism. The way the Ukrainians have the Ukrainian nationalism, and if you go on the, on the YouTube, you'll see when they play the Russian anthem, he cries, and the Russians like that. And if he's standing, uh, uh, you know, making a a, a, a a flower on the grave of the soldier, it's raining, he stands there and he gets wet. And they ask him on the Russian, I saw it. They ask on Russian TV, he said like this: I think of the Russian soldiers of World War Two, what they had to put up with. I could get wet. And Russia, boom! Yeah, that's nationalism. You follow? By the way, BB was very smart. Do you all follow the news? He made it his business to be at May Day, May 9th, last week, before the Jerusalem embassy, and put the flowers on the Russian soil. That means a lot over there in their country. You see, it means a lot. And it was two. It was Putin, and BB, and one other guy in, in Serbia. So all the countries of the world. That means Israel is saying, we are Makhshiv, the Red Army, the soldiers who fought to crush Hitler. You don't have to look at the Stalin part, you know, like that. And it means, a whole lot to them, I myself was in Israel, as many of you probably were, at Latrun, at the Tank Museum. Yeah, anybody know what I'm talking about? At the Tank Museum. Uh, I made the mistake of taking my daughters there, but anyway, um, and they have all these tanks. In the front, when you walk in, it's three tanks. It's it's a Sherman tank. It's a British I forget what kind of tank. It's a T thirty four, right? From the World War II. a Sherman tank, a, a Centurion. Down. What's it? Whatever. It doesn't matter. And 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 a T thirty four tank. And it says a sign in three languages. We honor soldiers, fought the fascists. And I was there and came a Russian tour group, not Jewish. And they got off the bus. All these blonde-haired, blue-eyed Russians, all the rest of it. They stood at attention, this, that, the other. Nationalism is alive in Eastern Europe. You don't make fun of it. You understand? In liberal circles, it's fashionable to decry patriotism as something decadent and all, the, you know, all that kind of business. That went out with the French Revolution, as it were. Uh, it's making a comeback in Eastern Europe and maybe in the other parts of Europe? Will it bring fascism with it and all that? Could very well be. We see the signs of this today. But the reasons are because there's still a strong strain in Europe that says I don't like the French Revolution. It's a mistake. Some pieces were good, but other pieces were not good. And if it means that I have to let in a trillion Muslims in my country, then I don't like the French, the French Revolution. What about the French Jews? Uh, BB?" You, it's funny. The French Jews stay in France and they still believe in the French Revolution in spite of everything that's going around. Did we get this? Bibi was in France after the Hyper killing. And do you remember he made a speech? And then, and he repeats it here in Israel French Jews, get out of there while you can and come to the Jewish country. But nobody came, two, three thousand. Okay, take a look at this. It's it got some וגם לקהילה היהודית בדלמרק, שוב מרצחו על אדמת אירופה יהודים, רק בגלל איונותם יהודים. וגם לפגועים הזה, צפוי להימשך, ובכללו גם התקפות אנטישמיות ורצחליות. היהודים זכאים כמובן להגנה בכל מדינה ומדינה, אבל אנחנו אומרים ליהודים, לאחינו ואחיותינו, ישראל היא הבית שלכם. (laughs) <laughs> now, it's, uh, but they didn't come? <laughs> the bottom line, they didn't come? Um, the French, they still believe in the French Revolution. I'm serious. No, why, why do French Jews stay in France? Is it France is it France. You know, it's still the country. It's the republic. Right? It's the laissez. Uh, so what's the bottom line concerning the following question? What has been the effect of the French Revolution on the Jewish people? You have to end ambiguously. <laughs> Too early to tell. If you ask me today what's been the effect of French on Jewish people, it's, it's only 200 years. You can't tell. Right? So far, and I end with this, there are only two countries that I know of that have historically said a Jew can be a Jew and you don't have to change and you still get acceptance. One is Israel and one is the USA. So far, all right? You can tell Lieberman to come run for vice president even though he knows the Shamashabas. That's extremely unusual. Trump is taking it even to new, to new, level. I'm just, you know, is is a, a, a new situation. I mean, he says it started to open the embassy. I mean, you know, crazy. Uh, there's no other country. But. We don't, I know American history up to now. I don't know the American future, okay? And you're one president away from uh, trouble, as, as, as the way it is. So a sober reckoning of the French Revolution should leave us, as is true with every important intellectual concept, with questions that by definition are always going to be more interesting than the answers. And with that I close for tonight. We are done. And I'll see you we're journey cyanide. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support dot Rabbi